there is an eternal kingdom. It was prophesied in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 that it would never be destroyed and that it would surpass all other kingdoms. It was preached about. We read in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17 that Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he simply took off where John left off. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2 says that John came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was promised. The kingdom was promised by Christ, a kingdom that we know as the church. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. It was purchased, purchased for sinners. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul lists a long line of egregious sins that are committed by people. But he says that even though some of them had once participated in those activities, it had been granted to them to be a part of this eternal kingdom. And the kingdom is prepared. It's prepared eternally for the people of God, for the cleansed. Jesus said that he is going away to prepare a place for us that where he is, we also might be. John chapter 14. When the pilgrims left England to come to America, there were some things they were wanting to escape. One of those things was a king, a monarchy. They wanted to establish a democracy. They wanted to be a part of something in which every person was endowed with certain inalienable rights. They did not want to be shackled by the forced religion that they once knew. They didn't want a king. And so I guess that's the reason why in the 200 plus years of our nation's history that there has never been a physical king, but there's been a democracy. There once was a man, however, that was a self-proclaimed king of the United States. He called himself the emperor. His name was Joshua Norton. He lived in San Francisco during the gold rush days of the 1800s. A very colorful individual. He had speculated in the rice market and he had become bankrupt. And in doing so, he, some say he lost his mind. And so he proclaimed himself emperor of these United States. Yeah, he walked around, he found a sword, he put a feather in his hat. I don't know if he called it macaroni or not. But he also donned a cape, and the people paid attention to him. I think they found it humorous, so they played along. And so Joshua Norton even gathered a small tax from the people of San Francisco, and he was allowed to issue his own money. When he died, over 10,000 people attended his funeral just to see what might happen. But he was no king. If he had ever claimed to really have any type of authority, certainly the government would have done something about that. You see, there can only ever be one king. And that's what Jesus came to be. But imagine the poor soul who enters eternity convinced that life was all about themselves, that they were the focus of the universe. What a focus, uh, what, a, what a shock to find out that the focus of the universe is the one who created the universe, and that is Christ. So Jesus offered to us a kingdom. How many of you 
have ever seen, I'm going to push this way back now, the Jewel Miller film strips. The films, have you ever seen the Jewel Miller film strips? See, some of you are saying, what is he talking about? Well, the film strips became video cassettes. How many people have seen the video cassettes? And then how many people have seen the DVDs? Okay. Um, boy, this generation has passed away of the people that have been exposed to the Jewel Miller film strips. But there is something in that particular series of lessons that talks about a kingdom. And it teaches that there are four things that must be necessary in order for any kingdom to exist. We're going to talk about some of those things tonight. Now, I've been assigned, Jesus teaches about the kingdom. And so as we talk about those four things, we're also going to talk about what the king said about his own kingdom. I think that's important for us to do. We start, of course, with the king. A kingdom has to have a king. Look over in John chapter 18 when Jesus was being tried before Pilate, who thought he was in authority, but he had only been given such authority by God. Pilate asked him about whether or not he's a king. After all, that was the proclamation. The people put him out there and accused Jesus of calling him the Son of God and calling himself uh, the King of the Jews. And so in verse 37 of John 18, it says, Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus replies, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, go back one verse. And Jesus says something about this kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Did the Jews want a king? They absolutely wanted a king. Go all the way back to the time in which there was no king. Go back to Moses. Moses freeing Israel. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. The blood on the lintel, the doorpost. The passing through the Red Sea, going into the wilderness for 40 years, and then over the Jordan River with Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. And there was still no king. You read about the period of the judges, 15 men and one woman who helped deliver Israel in the time that there was no king. And it says at the end of the book of Judges, the very last verse, that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now we went from that to the people asking for a king and God was disappointed that the people would not be willing just to let him be the authority of their lives. But they wanted a physical presence, and so God gave them the best man available physically, and that was Saul, head and shoulders above all of the rest. And then, then there was David and Solomon and so on. There was a kingdom. And there were great days for that kingdom in the early days of Israel. And the Jews always were hoping to get back to those glory days. And so the promise of the Messiah to them was something far different than what God had ever intended. And when different groups of the Jews, such as the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, 
came to be about 100 years before Jesus was born. There was a whole theory on what this kingdom was going to be like and how the Messiah was going to come. And so when Jesus came in the way that he did, people were not willing to accept him because his kingdom is not of this world. You know, even today in that location of the world, there are still people who believe that there is a Messiah that is going to come and establish a physical kingdom. In John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000 and people saw the power of Jesus, they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. They saw his spiritual ways, they saw his miraculous powers, and they thought for themselves, surely this is the one who's going to deliver Israel. And oh, how he did deliver Israel and the rest of us, but not in the way that the people had intended for it to be. Even after he was raised from the dead, and as he's standing there on the holy mountain and he's given the great commission to the apostles and he's about to ascend into heaven, they ask this question in Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But that's not the kind of king Jesus came to be. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and following, it says he is the one and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We certainly have a king. But I want to ask you, by implication, if there is a king, then what does that mean for people who are in the kingdom? Now, we've never been in a situation politically, like I said, in which we've had a king. But think about nations that do have kings. Usually, it happens one of two ways. Either they love the king, and they're willing to die for the king, or off with his head, right? But if you love the king, then you worship the king, and you listen to the king, and you want to please the king. And so if we love Christ the king, then how do we treat the king? Jesus said this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. And Jesus, it says at the end of Matthew chapter 7, spoke in such a way that the people marveled because he spoke with authority and not as one of the scribes would speak. But he said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? He is Lord, kurios, that means master. He is the king of our lives. And he expects for us to follow him, to die for him to be willing to do anything he would ask for us to do. That's what it means to have a king. Years ago, Emily Post, who was the etiquette expert of a former generation, was asked, what is the correct procedure when someone is invited to the White House but has a prior engagement? Now, today, it's different. You hear about this all the time. So-and-so is not going to see the president at the White House. Have you seen that many times? Because maybe a sports team wins and... Someone who's a star on that sports team is not in the same political party as, as the known president, and so they're almost kind of making a statement by not going. That's a popular thing to do these days. But it wasn't that way in times past, not in our country. It didn't matter who the president was. didn't matter what party they were in. You respected the office, and you thought about the importance of that particular invitation and the honor that was 
associated with that. And so this was the response by this etiquette expert. She said, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command and is automatically canceling all other engagements. Now, I thought about that. And then I thought about this Lord's Day morning where the king has invited us to partake of a memorial that helps us to celebrate our freedom from sin and his great sacrifice. And all I can say about that is all other engagements should be canceled because he's the king. Last week I was speaking up in Kentucky and I walked into a business and it said this on the wall. It makes us happy to make you happy. It makes us happy to make you happy. And I thought, well, that's a nice thing because I came in to be happy. You know, I came in because I was expecting a particular service and I wanted them to render it to me and hopefully uh, my money means something to them and they, my patronage means something to them and what do, what do they say in the business world? The customer is always... Yeah, see, so you, you know. It makes us happy to make you happy. Make you first place. I thought to myself, wouldn't that be wonderful if that's the way we approached the throne of God? That's the way that we looked at the king when we came to worship him. When we looked into his word. When we walked out of the building and lived our lives each and every day, it would make us happy to make him happy. I think that would be pleasing to our king. And the implication of a king over a kingdom is authority. It's sovereign. The book of Job is a book about suffering and the patience of Job and faith in God despite terrible circumstances. But I think above all things, it may be about the fact that God is sovereign. And that means that he is in rule of all things and he's in control of all things and we have to trust in him because at the end... Everything is going to work out according to his plan. And for the people of God, that means deliverance into the eternal kingdom, which is heaven itself. That means that I reckon or I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. And Jesus, as having that authority, that sovereignty, means it means that he's head over the church. And aren't we thankful? Aren't we thankful that Jesus is head of the church? I want to be a part of a church in which the ruler is perfect, in which the ruler is always just, in which the ruler is always loving and always gracious and always good. It's important to have a good king. And Jesus is the best king. And he is head of all things to the church. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God made Jesus, or he gave Jesus all authority in putting him as all things, head over all things to the church, which is his body. And he is the savior of the body, Ephesians 5 and verse 23. So Jesus is coming to save the church and no one outside the church. But he's called us into the church, he's called us into the kingdom because he has the authority to do that as king. And he offered his own blood to make that possible for us. There is a king. Now, what did the king say about the kingdom? I know I've been assigned to talk about what Jesus taught about the kingdom. So we have to look at Matthew chapter 13, at least for a minute, because this is the section of scripture that we often call the kingdom parables. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, you have the parable of the soils. 
And Jesus explains that to his disciples, and it sa- he says to them, it has been made known to you the opportunity to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but to the common people it's not been so. So Jesus spoke in parables. But as we look at the nature of the kingdom, Jesus says several things in Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 24 through 30. The parable of the wheat and tares. Some are sowing good soil. Some are sowing bad soil. That's the way it is in the spiritual world today. People are selling the truth religiously and people are selling a lie. I believe this parable tells us that we continue to sow the good soil. And we allow God to separate the truth from the lie. That doesn't mean that we don't expose error. It just means that we don't spend all of our time yanking up weeds. But we focus on the good news of salvation and we tell it to the lost. Then there's the parable of the mustard seed, verses 31 and 32. That talks about the growth of the kingdom. The seed might be tiny, but what it's willing to accomplish and the ability to accomplish is beyond our comprehension. Think about Jesus going back up into heaven for a minute. Five minutes after he ascended. And think about the angels surrounding Jesus and congratulating him on his great victory over Satan and death. And then, with great anticipation, they ask him the question, what is next? Now, I ask this as a real idea because it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 that there were mysteries concerning the gospel that the people of old didn't understand. Things that even angels desired to look into. Things that they did not know. So maybe the angels ask Christ, what's next? And what would his reply be? We all know that the day of Pentecost was next. And so he would have said something like this. I have 12 men. 12 men that I have given this great commission to, and they are responsible for the destiny of the kingdom. And I would imagine then that the angels might be a little bit disturbed. You mean you've given all of this that you've done to 12 fishermen and former tax collectors? What if they fail? To which Jesus would have replied, I have no other plan. It's upon us to spread the seed of the kingdom. How incredible that is that here we are tonight with a building full of more than 12 people. And all over the world, for the last 2,000 years, people have been coming into the kingdom with a very tiny seed, just a few people, because the power you see is in the seed. And the seed is the gospel. The seed is the word of God. And it changes lives. And it will change your life today. Then we see some more about the kingdom, the parable of the leaven. That is about letting time influence the kingdom with the preaching of the gospel. Then we see the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. And we see that the kingdom is so valuable that we would give up anything in order to be a part of it. Then we see the parable of the dragnet that tells us that into the kingdom flow all types of different people. And God knows who the good ones are and who the bad ones are. He knows who the pew fillers are, and he knows who the fruit bearers are. And he will divide between the two at the end of time. And there's even a parable here about the householder that many people have never even looked at or discussed in verses 51 and 52, in which Jesus is basically saying those who are taught the word of God in the kingdom of God will find both old things, old paths that are true, and also new treasures to be discovered 
and what the Holy Spirit teaches concerning the kingdom. And I find that very exciting as a Christian who wants to continually grow until the time for my calling comes. Jesus taught that the kingdom was valuable. He taught that it was attainable. He taught that it was spiritual. He taught that it was eternal. And he taught that it was unshakable. We have a great kingdom. Now, we have a king, so that's number one in the kingdom. The second thing you have to have if you have a kingdom is a law. All people within that kingdom must be governed by a law. Go back to what we said about the book of Judges. In the day there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What does that mean? That means anarchy. And that's the reason why God's people needed to be delivered from time to time. And the, the book of Judges is about cycles. Uh, the people fall away from God. They follow after the false idols of the Canaanites. And then God allows them to be punished by their enemies. And then they cry out to God and they say, we have sinned. And we need you to deliver us. And they cry this plea with a great cry. And God in his gracious nature and his mercy, his love for his people, would deliver them through a judge. And it seemed as if as long as that judge was alive and that figurehead of faithfulness was available to them, the people would stay faithful. But as soon as that person died, what happened? They fell back into sin again. And then all over again, they go through this cycle in which they fall away, they go back to the idols, and they need someone to come in and deliver them. Folks, don't be discouraged when you struggle in the Christian life to do what God tells you to do, because that is the human experience. I would like to say that when I turn 44 next Sunday, that I'm a perfect Christian, but I'm not. I would like to say back on Thursday when I celebrated the anniversary of the day that I became a Christian, that 33 years later, that I have attained, but I have not. There are going to be influences and there are going to be difficulties as long as we're in the kingdom. But the one thing that we can be assured of is that the law has not changed and the king is still enthroned. And as long as we continue to be a part of the kingdom and we strive to do that law and follow that king, we're going to be okay. Let's talk about that law. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, this blood, this cup represents the blood, which is the blood of the new covenant. This is being shed, of course, he says, for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. But at the moment in which that blood was flowing from his side, Jesus died. The Old Testament, or the law of Moses, as it were, was abolished. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, it says he has become a mediator of a better covenant, built on better promises. It says in verse 13 that that old covenant had become obsolete, that it was vanishing away. And so Jesus brought forth a New Testament. And so we are New Testament Christians today in the kingdom of God. We should know that it's a better covenant, that it has better promises. And yet, at the time in which we are trying to abide by that covenant, Satan is selling the world a lie every day. He tries to sell it to Christians. He tries to get us to be carnal people, not godly people. But the law is a spiritual law. 
and it's written on the hearts of men. And that law that exists is a law that binds us. Not only binds us to the cross and binds us to Christ, but it's also bound in the sense that it is going to judge us at the last day. When Jesus talked about the coming of the church in Matthew chapter 16, remember the great statement that Peter made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also said to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. The kingdom is the church. By the way, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, both in prophecy and in reality, is the church. Every time you ever hear about it, it is the church. The church is the kingdom of God on earth, but it will be the kingdom of heaven in its destiny. So the kingdom is here. Jesus said, there are not many of you standing here. There are some of you standing here that will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. It did come in power on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles. And Peter used the keys. And he opened up that kingdom with the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And it says in that same text, Peter, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Make no mistake, the preaching of the gospel of Christ is binding. The reality of the fact that there is still a law is, is true, even though people would like to reject it. You see, people in the 21st century don't want a law. They just want Jesus. They don't want instruction. They want freedom. They don't want anyone to tell them that anything that they are doing is wrong. They want tolerance. But make no mistake, kingdom still has a law. And it still has a rule book. And it still has a pattern. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It means that he does love us. Because his law is beautiful. And his commands and precepts are better than whatever we have decided we've got going for ourselves. If you look into Psalm 119, you will see the longest chapter of the Bible. And here it's an acrostic on the Word of God. And basically, the psalmist says over and over again that the Word of God is beautiful, that His commands are wonderful, that His precepts are the things that He wants to think about all day long. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119 and verse 97. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Verse 165. I want you to believe in the law of the king. I want you to believe that it is a noble law, that it is a good law, that it is a righteous law, that it's a spiritual law, and that it is a law that you can follow and that you need to follow because it is given to us with the love of the cross. Don't be afraid of the law of God. Embrace it. Is it going to change you? Yes. Are you going to have to conform to it? Yes. But it's a transformation that we all need because on our own, we're just like those people in the book of Judges wandering around in need for someone to deliver us from ourselves. In 1 John chapter 5, and verse 3, it tells us, this is the love of God, that, his, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not a burden to us. 
It is a law that loves us to instruct us, to help us. Just like we tell our children there are certain things that need to be obeyed, and even though they don't understand them right now, when they grow up, they will figure it out. That's the way that God instructs us and helps us and keeps us. And so when you read the Bible and you see something in there sometimes that you don't like, something that is going to challenge you to change the way that you live, just think of it like that day that your mom and dad took you by the hand and tried to bring you out of your own problems to instruct you so that one day you might grow up and be safe and free. So we have a king, we have a law, and then we have people that are subjects in the kingdom. Subject to both the kingdom or the king and the law, and that's us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and he has translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. It is he that made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Sheep of his hand. Psalm 100 and verse 3. We are subjects. You and I, if we're in the kingdom of God, are subjects. Now what does that mean? I was looking at the word subject. And you'd be surprised how many times it's in the New Testament. Because it talks a lot about submission. And being subject to the will of God. And that's got what God wants us to be. A subject noun, a citizen or member of a state other than its supreme ruler. As an adjective, it means under the authority of, bound by, constrained by, accountable to. As a verb, it means to bring someone or a group of people under one's own control or jurisdiction. We are subject to the law of God. The best day of your life is the day when you wave a white flag in full surrender to the king. When we tender our resignation, when we give up ourselves, when we decrease so that he might increase. That's what can happen if we're willing to submit to the will of God. Now, in thinking about this idea of being subject, I was looking back into Luke chapter 2, and verse 51. Because this talks about our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he was a child. And do you remember when he was in Jerusalem? They had gone to the temple... And they had left, his family had left, but they couldn't find where this 12-year-old Jesus was. And he was back at the temple, and he was talking to the, the, the lawyers or the experts on the law of Moses. And they were astounded that he knew so much. And when he was questioned by his parents, do you remember what he said to them? Know ye not, it says in the King James Version, that I must be about my father's business? But it says in verse 51 something very interesting. It says that after that time, he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth, and he was subject to them. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one whom John says there was not anything made without him, was subject to Mary and Joseph. Poor Jewish couple that didn't know very much and did not know what God was doing, Jesus was made subject. The fact that a holy God would come down to earth and be made subject to be submissive is for us an example. Christ also suffered, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, and left us as an example that we should follow in his steps to be submissive and subject. And so throughout the New Testament, it talks about being subject. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, it says that the carnal mind can't even be subject to the, the will of God because it thinks about the things of the flesh. And so the spiritual man has to out 
fight or outlast the, the physical man in order to be subject to the will of God. In Romans chapter 13, we're told to be subject to the authorities, not just because we might be punished, but also according to our own conscience. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 24, it says that the church is subject to Christ. I could go on and on. It says submitting to one another in the, in the will of God, in the fear of God. Ephesians 5 and verse 22, God wants us to be subject to his will. It means yielding. It means giving over to him. It means allowing him to rule our life. The fourth thing that the kingdom has, besides people, a ruler, and a law, is a territory. And this is my favorite part. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Luke 17 and verse 21. See, here was this idea of a king and a kingdom. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were looking for it. The Jews were looking for it. When Jesus first comes on the scene in John chapter 1, Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, We have found the Messiah. The one that we've been waiting for. And the, the word Messiah is the same word as the word Christ, by the way. It means the same thing. One's Hebrew and one's Greek, but it means anointed one. And specifically, the anointed one of God. And you go back in the Old Testament, and what happened to Saul before he became king? He was anointed by Samuel. And then David, and then Solomon, and so on. It was the one chosen by God to be the king. So the Messiah was the one that God had brought into the world. And they were saying to themselves, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who was prophesied about for centuries that would deliver Israel, that would make all things good? Now, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says something about the nature of the kingdom that we all need to understand. And if this is the only thing that you remember from tonight, this is what I want you to remember. Here's what he says in verse 20. He was asked by the Pharisees and Sadducees when the kingdom of God would come. And he answered and said to them, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here, or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It's within you. See, that's the territory that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is interested in. That's where he wants to reign. He wants to reign in our hearts. And that's what I understand you see about the church. And once the world can get that concept of what the church is all about, the kingdom is all about, then they'll understand the reason why there's no earthly headquarters. They'll understand why there is no man-made law. They'll understand why the seed, when it's planted in the hearts of men, simply makes a person a Christian, no matter where we go. And we can take this beautiful word, which is the seed of the kingdom, and we can take it to all the countries of the world and speak their language and the minute that they become children of God, they are planted into the kingdom by God himself. And so, like it says in Galatians chapter 3, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Because if we are Christ, you see, we're heirs. And if we are heirs, then we are children of Abraham. Heirs according to the promise where the seed has made its mark in our lives and in our hearts, and the kingdom of God is within you. And you see, we have such a king that is different than all the other kings that has ever existed in the world, because many a king a golden crown has worn, but only one a diadem of thorn. 
And many a king has sat on jeweled throne, but only one hung on the cross alone. And although there were garlanded streets, cheered by the crowd, kings have ridden, there was only one with his head bowed. Beneath the burden of his cross passed on to die on Calvary. One king, simply one. All other kingdoms shall pass and are passing now, save his who wore the bramble on his brow. You see, when I think about my king and what he did for me, how he died there for me, I surrender. I surrender my heart to the king of kings. And that's where I want him to dwell. And that's what really we need to understand about the kingdom, you see. Because once the kingdom of God is within you, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Once the kingdom of God is within you, there is no law that an earthly king will pass that will be more important than the laws of God. Once the kingdom of God is within you, then everything that you do will be for the king, and you will serve the king, and you will love the king, because he first loved you. Jesus is the king. The kingdom is the church. It's spiritual. It's valuable. It's unshakable. It's eternal. And it's available. The New Testament is the law. Christians are the subjects. And the territory is each individual heart. You know what Jesus said about the kingdom? He said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born of the water and the spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. So tonight, if you're not a child of God, the way that you become a child of God is by being born again of the water and the Spirit. A person comes in faith, understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for us, that He allowed His blood to be given for our sins, and that He purchased that kingdom with His blood. And when we, by faith, accept who Jesus is, when we repent of our sins and confess Him as Lord, then we can be immersed in water for the remission or forgiveness of our sins. And we'll become Christians because we'll be clothed with Christ, Galatians 3 and verse 27. We'll be added to the church by Him, Acts 2 and verse 47. We will be saved because he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16 and verse 16. And we'll have our sins forgiven, remitted, washed away because of the power of His blood, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. That's what can happen to an individual when they enter the kingdom of God. I end with this thought. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. There is an eternal kingdom. I'm so glad that I'm a part of it. Aren't you? And if you're not, you need to be. If you're not a Christian, become a Christian tonight. If you're struggling, if you need prayers, if you need to come back and submit yourself back to the King who once won your heart, won't you come? Won't you respond? As together we stand and as we sing.